that this was a thing Subcommittee on Deep Dives into Cultural Happenings of Yesteryear is called to order. First witness is Robert W. Schneider. Mr. Schneider, do you understand why you're here today? I do. And why is that? To tell our listeners about the House Un-American Activities Committee and how they needlessly destroyed lives and chat all over the U.S. Constitution, all for personal gain. Proceed. The House Un-American Activities Committee, today on This Was a Thing. This was a thing Cigarette ads and Disneyland This was a thing Deborah and Bert kiss in the sand Lana Turner kicks the bucket Elvis Presley starts to sing Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we are looking at the Hollywood Blacklist, more specifically, the Hollywood Ten, ten individuals who were blacklisted for having ties to the Communist Party and were told they could never work in Hollywood again. Well, if they're communists. Okay, so maybe, Ray, you're going to be in support of this episode. I'm going to be uh, against this episode, and uh, we'll have a nice political debate today. Look, I'm just saying this country wasn't built on a handout. Yeah, that's that's all I'm saying. Now i got to go collect my Social Security. <laughs> Keep your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> I saw somebody that had that protest sign once, and I was like... Uh, you realize? Okay, never mind. Now, this was a thing because one thing the United States prides itself on is the freedom of democracy. Now, other countries have brutal dictatorships and oppressive bureaus and paid-for cabinet positions, but the United States does not. It believes that you can practice whatever political party you so want, and um, the American people can say nothing about it, or the American government can say nothing about it. But back in the 1940s and 50s, that was a little bit different. And in those few years, if you align with a particular political belief, then you were censored in the entertainment industry. It was called the Hollywood Blacklist. Do we have a Hollywood Blacklist today? Perhaps, but more on that a little bit later. Well, for good scripts. It's a good script. So <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about the Red Scare, the Red Scare. America was created with an us-against-them mentality, and when the country is united against a common enemy, the nation thrives. Think about uh, 9-11, right? If the country is in war, it's easy to point to a country. But when we're not at war, a new enemy must emerge, and in post-World War II America, the enemy was communism. Russian communism, the political idea that dominated America's enemy, Russia, and one that said everyone is equal, all property should be public, and there is no class system, meaning capitalism is not welcomed. So even though our story takes place in the 50s, we need to go all the way back to the 1930s to understand how Hollywood became a walking target for the U.S. government. It's funny to think that the people that were so against communism were like the people in the highest class going like, oh, there's definitely a class. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to keep that class system in place. Come on, Junior. I do not look good in the color olive. No, uh, you know, everything they were so wooly and burgundy, and that's not me. I like white linens uh, with a nice sky blue ascot. Ooh. 
the first place we're going, get your get your suitcase ready, uh, is Washington, D.C., 1938, for the House Committee on Un-American Activities. We call it HUAC. It was actually the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which was a group of congressmen who investigated the disloyalty and subversive actions of private citizens, public employees, and organizations that were tied in fascism or communism in some way, shape, or form. Now, um, this had been tried a few times before in American history, where the government is going to look into the personal lives of individuals under the guise of we have to protect the country. It was first tried in uh, 1918 with the Overman Committee, and they didn't like Germans, so they were looking for no German stuff in any of their stuff they were doing. 1930 gave us the Fish Committee, and that investigated those with communist ties like the ACLU. And I'm guessing it had to do with uh, people who cut, who were also known as anglers, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're Communist anglers. No, Congressman, I think you're a little bit wrong here. Uh, the, we're, we're just looking at commies in general, not, 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 not fishing. This is Congressman Fish. He just happens to have the last name, Fish. I feel like we might want to change the name. People are going to get confused. Okay, Congressman. Well, time to go vote now <laughs> on the future of America. Uh, the McCormick-Dickstein Committee. Now, that's a name that needs to be changed. Uh, aren't they a salt company? They are. <laughs> in 1937, and they were focusing only on propaganda coming into the United States. Um, and the one that will affect us today, which is known as the Dyes Committee, D-I-E-S, it was named after uh, Republican uh, Texas Congressman Martin Dyes Jr., and it was created to expose communists. <laughs> Do you think the headline after uh, he kicked the bucket was, Dies passes away. (laughs) (laughs) Nice work there on that editorial, Joe. Basically, what these committees were able to do was get rid of anyone they thought would undermine America, and they would shout commie at them, and they were able to get away with it. Now, were there spies in the government that were working for Russia? Of course there was. It was actually rumored that Dick Stein was a communist. Um, But these committees went after something deeper and more personal. And that is don't upset the status quo. Don't think anything different than democracy. Don't think anything different than patriotism. And anything that goes against that is considered to be wrong. Now, once again, the big thing that we're going to be dealing with today is that it's not illegal at this time to have been a communist. I don't think at any time in our history, it's been illegal to have been a communist. But if you can't make that illegal, don't worry. They're going to do a lot of other ways to make it feel like you're being thrown into jail. One of the most prominent witnesses to appear before the committee was a woman by the name of Hallie Flanagan in 1938. She was head of the Federal Theater Project, which was in hot water since she spearheaded the 1935 musical The Cradle Will Rock, which was closed by the government. Do you know the story? No. So... um, During the uh, Roosevelt's administration, in order to get people back to work, he created a lot of federally funded projects, of which one of them was called the Federal Theater Project to get actors and writers back to work, right? So they were doing a musical called The Cradle Will Rock, which was very anti-capitalist. And on opening night, they showed up to the theater, and the theater on Broadway was locked. And the police said, "We, we have orders from the government. We're not allowed to let you in. And the actors were told, you know, if you participate in this, you'll be kicked out of the union. So you have to imagine, like, outside of a Broadway theater, there's tons of people, like, in their tuxedos and evening gowns. It's opening night. And they didn't know what to do. So what they did was they walked, I think, like, 20 blocks uptown. They found an abandoned theater. And the composer sat at a piano. And the actors, in order not to be thrown out of the union, because they were told if you step on stage, you'll be thrown out, sat in the audience and stood up and delivered their lines from the audience. 
in order not to not to be arrested. There's a wonderful movie called The Cradle Will Rock with Tim Robbins if you want more on that. Um, but anyway, so she was in hot water because okay. she was the one who had produced it. When she got in front of the committee who was familiar with the plays that she was producing, they asked her if Christopher Marlowe was a communist, even though he had been dead for about 400 years. And the committee accused Mr. Euripides of preaching class warfare. Isn't that uh, in Cat? Yes, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Euripides. And the reason that Hallie Flanagan was called uh, was because she said how much she enjoyed Russian theater. That's the theater that goes really fast, right? Really fast theater. Yeah. So that's the only thing that she was called up for because she liked Russian theater. Uh, <laughs> Dostoevsky so, is just really funny. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's Washington. Now let's go to Hollywood. This is really where the, the foundation of all of this is going to begin. Hollywood was dominated by the studio system, which meant that you as an actor or a writer or a director only were allowed to work for one company. So you belonged to MGM. You belonged to Paramount. You cannot work for any other studio. You had to do what the studio bosses told you. And the final word at the studio was the bosses. And communism was a threat to these bosses like Samuel Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer because uh, communism was pro-union, which meant someone would now be above the bosses. And uh, that really got under the skin of the studio heads. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. And the most vocal of these unions was the Writers Guild. And they were very insistent on what they wanted. And they were relatively new in the grand scheme of things because they had only been created in 1933. The public now loved these people, though. So how could Hollywood turn the public on some of these people who were beloved and still keep their power? Yep, you guessed it. They'd be a dirty commie. Their first toe dip into this was uh, when Dr. J.B. Matthews, a very disillusioned communist, he was one of the first to name names. He would go before the committee and say, this person's a communist and that person's a communist and this person's a communist Uh, without any evidence to back it up, except, oh, I saw them say they were a communist or I heard them say they were communist. They have a fur hat. It's going to get like that. Just get ready. I saw them one time dancing at a wedding and they were like squatting, but then they were also doing the can-can while squatting. Commie. Come over here, Stalin. Dr. Matthews discussed his fear regarding, quote, the carelessness or indifference of thousands of prominent citizens in lending their names for the Communist Party's propaganda purposes and reported that, quote, the French newspaper Cissois, which is owned outright by the Communist Party, featured hearty greetings from Clark Gable, Robert Taylor, James Cagney, and even Shirley Temple. No one, I hope, is going to claim that any one of these persons in particular is a communist. She's Um, the cutest little communist there ever was. And they broadcast this all over the news. Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he had enough of this, which is you can't just call random citizens communists without any sort of proof. And once again, it's not illegal to be a communist. So his interior secretary, Harold Ickes, if you're an Annie fan, you know Harold Ickes sings in tomorrow with everybody. Uh, he said, quote, they've gone into Hollywood and they are just dis- and they're discovered a great red plot. They have found dangerous radicals there led by little Shirley Temple. Imagine the great committee raiding her nursery and seizing her dolls as evidence. They find photos of her in like just like these uniforms. I mean, to 
to sell the sequence to Mr. Starwim. My combat boots have tap t- taps on the bottom. That's tap, Shirley. <laughs> they all tap. Now, uh, oh wow, the communists at least have a giant set of stairs for her to go down. That's nice. Now, Martin dies. He did not like being a laughing stock, and so he decided to privately take the testimony of a gentleman named John L. Leach. Now, Mr. Leach was a former communist organizer in Los Angeles, and he named forty-two industry folks. Wow. And those names got leaked. I wonder how. And they included Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, Frederick March, and Catherine Hepburn. But, Mr. Dye said, it was simple. All they had to do was testify that they were not commies. All they had to do was come in front of the committee and swear that they were not communists and they would have cleared their name. Within two weeks, all of those people met with Dye's and all were cleared except for a gentleman named Lionel Stander. You like Heart to Heart? Do you remember the TV show Heart to Heart? Uh, I know, I know it. He was Max, the old guy with the weird voice. Okay. This is my boss. Oh, okay. Mr. Hot. Yeah, 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 yeah. got it. Um, and because of this, he was fired by Republic Pictures. Oh. So he was automatically fired from the studio. Now, a lot of people in Hollywood rolled their eyes at HUAC, except Walt Disney, who gladly named names. And uh, what had happened over at Walt Disney Studios was a bunch of animators wanted to unionize, and he didn't want that, so he called them commies. And when he testified, he named all their names. There's no proof that they were communists, per se, but, and also, once again, it's not illegal to be a communist. Some people attended meetings. Some people believed in it. But the fear that all these committee members had, or which made no sense, was that communist propaganda was being slipped into movies and then fed to the public. And you, and you just have to think to yourself, if that was the case... Wouldn't a director have stopped it or a studio head have stopped? Do you know what I mean? They're just they're making it up and sound like these commies are like taking over the movies and then just releasing them willy nilly, which is not the case. I, I feel like these arguments are still made today when you go, well, there's here's the proof of no proof and the proof of no proof. Yeah. And uh, and and it's still well, you you obviously must not see it. Uh, you you don't understand. I mean, you ex- don't get oh, exactly. It. Exactly. You know I mean, exactly. Like it's, it's all the like. Well, this QAnon is, you know, this, 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 and this is why you're wrong. Well, you know, you just don't see, or your your eyes are closed to the truth, and I don't know. No, it I never changes. Eighty years later, no, it does, and I'm sure there was stuff before this, but no, it it does not change. Now, I will say what was interesting is is that when communism was around in the like in America and Hollywood in the 20s and 30s, it was very it was a very pro union idea that people really believed in. But then once the communists over in Russia decided to like they they would do certain things where like oh you know we'll make a pact with germany where they don't attack that that really pissed people off so being a communist sort of lost its cachet after a while it's just funny to think of like the people who have like the stickers like uh work union and all this stuff nowadays because those guys that are like so pro-union are probably would be so anti-communist oh absolutely you know what i mean like absolutely so when world war ii ended there was no physical enemy left. So what to do? What to do? Well, they, uh, the House Committee to Investigate on american Activities decided they needed a group to focus on. And the first one the committee had decided on was the KKK. But committee member John E. Rankin, who was a Democrat from Mississippi, he said, no, 
Because, quote, after all, the KKK is an old American institution. (laughs) So instead of the Klan, Hudak (sighs) concentrated on investigating the possibility that the Communist Party had infiltrated the Works Progress Administration, which also included the Federal Theater Project and the Federal Writers Project. You make commie requests, you're commie. Period. They had begun to uh, fanning the flames and Rankin stated, quote, one of the most dangerous plots ever instigated for the overthrow of this government has its headquarters in Hollywood, the greatest hotbed of subversive activities in the United States. Well, in 1947, Walt Disney came to help again, and he issued a pamphlet advising producers on the avoidance of, quote, subtle communistic touches in their films. Um, And he gave them a couple of, like, goalposts to remember. One, don't smear the fear enterprise system. Don't smear industrialists. Don't smear wealth. Don't smear the profit motive. Don't defy the common man. Don't glorify the collective. So that was the Walt Disney, hey, from boss to boss. Here, maybe this is something you, you can keep an eye out on. Donald Duck was holding all the signs. He went. <laughs> hey, don't smear the blue rabbit. What was that, Mr. Duck? Yeah, don't smear the <laughs> uh, Don't smear the profit motive. Oh, thank you, Mr. I Disney. I finally have a voice. <laughs> but it all changed for Hollywood and everyone stopped laughing on July 29th. 1946, when William Wilkerson, the founder of the Hollywood Reporter, he published a column called, quote, a vote for Joe Stalin. Willie Wilkerson. On this list, because he named names in this article. Yeah. Dalton Trumbo, Maurice Raff, Lester Cole, Howard Koch, Harold uh, Buckman, John Wexley, Ring Lardner Jr., Harold Samuelson, Henry Myers, Theodore Strauss, and John Howard Lawson. These are not the Hollywood 10. This is just the first group of people that he publicly put in print saying they're communists. Then another list in August and another one in September, and they were known now as Billy's List. And suddenly, instead of looking at scripts, actors were now looking at subpoenas. And if you refused to testify, congratulations, you were held in contempt of Congress charges. Which which actually held something back in the day. Yes, now it's not it's not just a yeah, no. elective. Here's a, a newsreel from that particular time. Calling the House Un-American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The committee is seeking to determine if Red Party members have reached the screen with subversive propaganda. And a parade of Hollywood types were brought to Washington, D.C. in October of 1947 as the committee explored if Hollywood was subliminally planting red propaganda in their movies. How this would go beyond the moguls is beyond me. How do you even do that? Oh, and uh, here's our here's our distinguished chairman uh, talking about the committee. I want to emphasize at the outset of these hearings that the fact that the Committee on Un-American Activities is investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself, nor should our investigation be interpreted as an attack on the majority of persons associated with this great industry. I have every confidence that the vast majority of movie workers are patriotic and loyal Americans. Now, the hearings needed to start with two big people from Hollywood who would throw their support behind the committee, and you could not ask for two bigger stars than these individuals. The first one, Mr. Walt Disney. I I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing, and uh, the thing that that I resent the most is that they 
are able to get into these unions and take them over and represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good 100% Americans uh, have, are trapped by this group and they're represented to the world as supporting all of those ideologies and it's not so. And I feel that, uh, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American can go out without this taint of communism. That's my sincere feelings on it. And if you'll notice, they let him talk for quite a long time. That was one of the things the committee did, which is if you were agreeing with the committee, you were allowed to talk as long as you wanted. If you did not agree with the committee, you were silenced immediately. Of course. Um, nothing more powerful than having the president of the Screen Actors Guild themselves coming in front of the committee. And at this time, it was a gentleman by the name of Ronald Reagan. Oh, God. I will be frank with you that as a citizen, I would hesitate or I would not like to see any political party outlawed on the basis of its political ideology because we've spent 170 years in this country on the basis that democracy is strong enough to stand up and fight for itself against the inroads of any ideology no matter how much we may disagree with it but at the same time i never as a citizen want to see our country become so uh, or become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. Well, we agree I with still that think too. that democracy can do it. We agree with that. We agree with that. Thank you very much. We shouldn't do it, but it's okay. Nah, it's not okay. And then, of course, one of my personal favorites was uh, another uh, another pro, actor Adolf Manjou. Now, that's a name. You got that with your uh, roast beef sandwiches, right? You do, yeah. I want to dip it in my Manjou. <laughs> Uh, Adolf Manjou uh, looks like he's just sitting at a bar talking, which I love about his. Everyone else is very poised at these Washington things. He's just slacking in the chair. The Communist Party in the United States should be outlawed by the Congress of the United States. It is not a political party. It's a conspiracy to take over our government by force, which would enslave the American people as the Soviet government, 14 members of the Politburo, hold the Russian people in abject slavery. So he says it's not a political party. There was the great actor Robert Taylor. I personally certainly do believe that the Communist Party should be outlawed. However, I'm not an expert on politics or of what the reaction would be. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia or some other unpleasant place. The big one, Louis B. Mayer of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, studio head. What do you think will happen in a period of 5 or 10 or 15 years? if these individuals keep on infiltrating the pictures. I'm just hopeful that perhaps out of this hearing, our Congress, recommended by this committee, will have legislation that can be no question to give us a policy how to handle American citizens who don't deserve to be, if they are communists, to get them out of our place. So once again, I think what a lot of these people were reacting to was the fact that if these unions were strong, they were going to hold these uni- these studio bosses to higher standards, and studio bosses did not want that. And so I think that they took advantage of this idea that, oh, communism is going to take over. I don't think – we know that there were some communists that were working like in the State Department whose idea it was was simply to try to get secrets and sell them over to Russia. I understand that. But in Hollywood, what is the problem? Do you know what I mean? We want to find out how they lit that scene. It was very impressive. 
What did you use? Candles? <laughs> uh, regardless whether you agreed with communism or not, it was a political party and therefore should be protected under the Constitution. So a group of Hollywood actors who had not been subpoenaed, they flew to Washington for support, including Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, John Huston, Danny Kaye, Judy Garland, and they formed Committee for the First Amendment Banner. Now, what's interesting is uh, Humphrey Bogart was hesitant because he said, look, if any one of us on this committee uh, is a commie, they'll get us for being stupid and it weakens us. And everyone said, well, we're not communists. Well, Sterling Hayden was. <laughs> and uh, Bogart quickly went away from the group and uh, wrote immediately how he was anti-communist. So he doubled down pretty fast or backtracked pretty fast. 43 people were on this witness list. 19 declared they would not give evidence. 11 of them were called in front of the committee out of these 11, one of them, uh, Bertolt Brecht, the playwright from Germany, mm. he fled the country, but not before he answered some questions in front of the committee before he left. Uh, are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of any country? <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I have heard uh, my colleagues uh, uh, and they considered this question not as proper, but... I am a guest in this country and do not want to enter in any legal arguments, so I will answer your question fully as well I can. I was not a member or am not a member of any Communist Party. You have never been a member of the Communist Party? That is correct. You were not a member of the Communist Party for Germany? No, I was not. Well, what, what did he write? He wrote Mother Courage and Her Children, um, the Caucasian Chalk Circle. He's known for being really lively and yes. bright. Yeah. <laughs> uh, optimism coming yeah. out of all those yeah, yeah. So with him gone, 10, 10 people are left that were called in front of the committee. And Monday, October 10th, 1947, here they came. I want to introduce them each to you, uh, so that way you have an understanding of, of who they were. Uh, their names were Alva Bessie, who was a screenwriter, Herbert Biberman, who was a writer and director, Lester Cole, who was a screenwriter, Edward Dimitrik, who was a director, Ring Lardner Jr., who was a screenwriter, John Howard Lawson, who was the, a screenwriter and the first president of the Writers Guild Association, Albert Matz, who was a screenwriter, Samuel Ornitz, who was a screenwriter, Adrian Scott, um, also a screenwriter, and Dalton Trumbo, also a screenwriter. These were the 10 that were called up to testify. The first one I want to introduce you to, and because I'm just going to go in alphabetical order, is Alva Bessie. We are aware of a developing nightmare of fear in our land, in which increasing numbers of citizens are being forced to swear, I am not this, I am not that, I don't belong to anything, I don't believe in anything, I don't criticize anything. So, Alva Bessie got in front of the committee and said, I'm not going to say anything. He goes, I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to tell you whether I'm a communist or not. Um, and for that, he was sentenced to 10 months in prison. Wow. Let's meet Herbert Biberman, who was a writer and a director. He was suspected because of his quote unquote communist philosophy of being uh, a Nazi, mm -hmm. except for the fact Mr. Biberman was Jewish. Here he is in front of the committee, also 
standing up to the committee saying he's not going to testify. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this uh, particular Mr. Chairman, fashion, will you direct the witness to answer that question? You have only one idea, the question. and that is to call the question. in the industry, You're excused. chaos in the industry, will and you direct the witness to answer that question, Mr. Chairman, before he leaves the stand? I have not refused to answer the question. I told you before I will answer this question now, fully. Mr. Lieberman, Your purpose is to use this to disrupt the motion picture industry, now, to Mr. invade Lieberman. the right not only of me, but of the producers to their thoughts, to their opinions. And this I will not permit. For his refusal, he was sentenced to six months wow. in prison. Lester Cole was a screenwriter. And he, he, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about him in, in a little bit. Uh, but he was sentenced to 10 months in prison for refusing to name names. Um, and he's going to be the most uh, vi- vitriolic of this group. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he did a little bit later on. Oh, geez. Edward Dimitrik. He was a director, like I mentioned before. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later on as well, because he he was sentenced uh, to prison. A little teaser. Uh, and he was re- he was in prison for about four months. Ring Lardner Jr., a screenwriter, uh, he was in, spent a year in prison also for not answering questions. And actually, here he is on testifying before the House on American Activities Committee and being branded as one of the Hollywood Ten. Here's Ring Lardner Jr., I, I believe in 2000. And turn the over to the uh, committee council, who then said, all right, Mr. Wardner, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And I said, well, I can answer that question too, but I'd like to explain. Thomas said, never mind explaining anything, you know. Uh, And I said one other thing, and he said, come on, answer the question. Any real American would be happy to answer that question. And I said, well, I could answer it the way you want, Mr. Chairman, but if I did, I'd hate myself in the morning. And he said, leave the witness chair, Uh, take him away. And I said, I think I'm being removed by force. And and I was indeed, a couple of sergeant at arms or something, one took each arm and led me off. I was led away by a couple of cops. The most outspoken person to be called in front of the blacklist was uh, John Howard Lawson, who was the first president of the Writers Guild Association. And he spent a year in prison. Wow. And uh, for contempt of, they're, they're, by the way, they're all being cited for contempt of Congress and they all have to pay a fine that equivalent today is about maybe like $11,000. But uh, here he is talking to the committee and not kindly. Take it away, Mr. Lawson. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? The question of communism is in no way related to this inquiry, which is an attempt to get control of the screen and to invade the basic rights of American citizens in all fields. The question here relates not only to the question of my membership in any political organization, but this committee is attempting to establish the right which is historically denied to any committee of this sort. We're going to get the answer to that question if we have to stay here for a week. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the That's basic principles the of Americanism. Then we have uh, Albert Matz, who was a screenwriter. Um, and like I said, he, was, he spent a year in jail. Now, f- for some odd reason, 
his was called a record vote. So they, they had to vote in Congress if he was in contempt of Congress. Everyone had to be voted on. But it was done usually with like, you know, not not a secret ballot per se, but you didn't need to do a vo- um, uh, a record vote. A record vote is like, Mr. Hebel, how do you vote? So the whole public can hear it. Albert Matz is a screenwriter and like he was the only one who had that. And I think it's because he was pissed at John E. Rankin because he said, quote, that he would not be dictated to or intimidated by men to whom the Ku Klux Klan as a matter of committee record is an acceptable American institution. So I think it was to really stick the knife into him after he embarrassed John E. Rankin, who remember, if you remember, said the KKK was an American institution. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him later on. Uh, There was another screenwriter by the name of Samuel Ornitz. Um, He also served time in prison and he died very soon after. Uh, Here he is testifying. This involves a serious question of conscience for me. Conscience? Conscience, sir. Conscience. I say you do raise a serious question of conscience for me. When you ask me to act in concert with you to override the Constitution, uh, Mr. Chairman, go ahead. Wait, wait a minute, let me ask you a question. Just, just a minute. minute. You're question. asking me ask to violate the constitutional now, just a minute. Uh, uh, the witnesses through. Stand away. Adrian Scott, we'll talk about him in a, in a little bit. He also served jail time. The one we probably remember the most uh, because there's just been so much work about him and he he lived for quite some time afterwards and, and made a, a pretty big uh, life talking about the committee was uh, Dalton Trumbo. He was a screenwriter. He didn't work for about 11 years. He also spent time in prison. This is Dalton Trumbo testifying. Mr. Stribling, you must have some reason for asking me this question. You you can address the committee. Uh, I understand that members of the press have been given an alleged Communist Party card belonging to me. Is that true? No, that's not true. You're not asking the question. I was. The chief investigator's asking the question. Now, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Well, you will pretty soon. One of the things that came out of this, which I thought was so interesting, was they made a little documentary back in 1950 about these the Hollywood 10. And it was pro-Hollywood 10. And they had the, all of them sit at a table facing the camera to talk a little bit about their experiences. Uh, this is them. In 1859, Abraham Lincoln said, the people are the rightful masters of the Congresses and the courts. We believe this. And for asserting that belief before a congressional committee, 10 of us are going to prison, casualties of the Cold War. How many more will there be? There need be no more. That depends on you. Truly, it depends on you. Truly, it depends on you. All 10 had to serve jail time. All 10 had to pay a fine. I'll tell you a little bit about what happened to them. Alva Bessie, the screenwriter, um, was not allowed to come back to Hollywood. He decided to become uh, a master of ceremonies in San Francisco and became a novelist. Herbert had his... uh, admitted his membership to the Directors Guild of America revoked. 
And his wife, who was an actress, was not allowed to work as well, guilt by association. Lester Cole, remember I told you he was the one who was the most vitriolic, um, he eventually got to make films under a fake name. It took him a long time. And in 1981, he published his autobiography entitled Hollywood Red, the autobiography of Lester Cole. And he told the story of when uh, an ex-communist named Bud Schulberg, um, uh, who was also a very friendly witness to the committee, testified. And Bud Schulberg and Elliot Kazan, who was a director, they named names without any problem and were sort of, they kept their careers and were glorified. One day, Schulberg is on a radio program and uh, somehow Lester Cole got onto the program because they did a call in. And he just yelled at him and said, aren't you the canary who sang before the Un-American Committee? Aren't you that canary? Or are you another bird, a pigeon, the stool kind? Just sing, canary. Sing, you bastard. <laughs> and then they hung up on him. Baba Booey. Baba, <laughs> Baba Booey. <laughs> Excuse me? Five years, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and one of the things that was very popular at this time was what was known as fronting. Well, that's when you... What's that? When you show your penis, right? No, man. No, no, no. It's when you've been blacklisted oh. and still want to write, so you hire someone to uh, use their name. So if I was blacklisted, I would write a script and then put your name on it, and then you would be the one who would submit it to the studios. So like, you would watch these Oscar ceremonies, and they would go, Joe Smith for this thing, and this guy would go up there and accept the Oscar who didn't write one word of it. But it was the only way these blacklisted writers could keep working. There was also uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who was fired by Fox. He became the last surviving member of the Hollywood 10. His career did move up a little bit because he won the Oscar for MASH, for the screenplay for MASH. Um, and he also said that he had done another movie that had won best, either best picture or best screenplay, but it was not the, it was, it was somebody else took credit for it. John Howard Lawson, this guy I, I find to be so fascinating. He's the one that was really yelling and screaming at them. He was actually a lot more advanced, I think, than a lot of other artists at this time. Um, people did say that he did ask for communist propaganda to be placed in films, but he was also very pro-feminist. And one of the things that he argued was that women in Hollywood have been degraded for quite some time. And he said, quote, Hollywood treats glamour and sex appeal as the sum total of a woman's personality and portraits of women in Hollywood films fall into three general categories. The woman as a criminal or the instigator of crime, the woman as man's enemy fighting and losing for, for she must always lose in the battle of the sexes and the woman as a primitive child fulfilling the male dream of a totally submissive vehicle of physical pleasure. He also said in U.S. movies, quote, when a woman succeeds in the world of competition, Hollywood holds that her sex is achieved by trickery, deceit, and the immoral use of sexual appeal. It's a pretty, pretty big statement to be making way ahead of the time. Then there was, we talked about Albert Matz. He was the one who said, I don't, I'm not going to testify to anyone who thinks the KKK is a valid institution. He had a very interesting life he was asked by Frank Sinatra in the 60s after he had been blacklisted to sort of get him back to work to write a screenplay for him called The Execution of Private Slovic. 1960s also in election year. And if you remember, Frank Sinatra was really good friends with John Kennedy, oh, yeah. who was running for president. And John Wayne, the conservative John Wayne, publicly uh, challenged John Kennedy and said, hey, John, 
do you feel okay that your buddy Frank Sinatra just hired a commie God. to write his screenplay? And when people were like, that doesn't matter, John Wayne said, quote, it does matter because, sorry, quote, because Mr. Kennedy is the one who is making plans to run the administrative government of our country. And so eventually, though, Sinatra got was pressured by Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, and uh, the Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Matz was removed from the picture. Samuel Ornitz, uh, he died very soon after all of this went down, so he didn't really do that much. Um, Adrian Scott also died somewhat young. Uh, he was fired by RKO for his involvement. And in 1955, he published an essay titled Blacklist, the liberal straitjacket and its effect on content in the Hollywood Review. Now, Dalton Trumbo is going to have a really interesting story here because like, he, he was known as probably being one of the best screenwriters of his time. And so what he did was he did a lot of fronting. He got a lot of people to write for him with a different name on it. And so he done movies like the brave one Roman holiday, although you might not see his name on these pictures, he was the one that was doing them. And then finally in 1960, Otto Preminger and Kirk Douglas were like, this is fucking crazy. Otto Preminger was a director. Kirk Douglas was an actor. And they said, this is just nuts. Like there is no reason why these people should not be credited for what they're doing. It's a free country. And Otto Preminger publicly said, um, Dalton Trumbo wrote Exodus and he'll be credited as such. And Kirk Douglas was like, oh, by the way, he also wrote Spartacus <laughs> and should be credited as such. Here's uh, Kirk Douglas actually talking about this. Well, Dalton Trumbo, I didn't exactly call him back. You give him the because he was writing all the time, but always under a false name. And the hypocrisy of that disturbed me. So I said, look, I want to use Dalton Trumbo, and I insist on using his name. I had a lot of resistance from the uh, studios. But uh, finally I said, I won't make the picture unless we can use his name. And we used his name, and the earth didn't fall apart. And after that, I'm proud to say that it broke the blacklist. And they began to use people's names who had been before that unfairly on the blacklist. I want to go back to uh, an individual that we have not talked about yet. And that is a gentleman by the name of Edward Dimitrik, who was the director. He did Crossfire. Mr. Dimitrik has a very interesting story. He was fired from RKO, which was his studio. Before he served his prison sentence, he fled to the United Kingdom. His passport expired. He had to return to the United States upon he would, he was arrested as soon as he came back in. Um, and he served for about prison for four months. But then on April 25th, 1951, he appeared before the committee for a second time. And this time he answered all their questions. He spoke of his own party membership. He named party members. He named about 19 uh, people or so. And they said, what changed your mind? And he said it was the Alger Hiss case, which was the discovery of spies within the government. And he said that people like John Howard Lawson, Adrian Scott, and Albert Maltz and others had pressure to him, uh, had pressured him to include communist elements in his film and his testimony damaged several court cases that the others of the 10 had filed. Jeez. Here, here is Mr. Dimitrik many years later explaining why he did what he did. I think it started with John Howard Lawson's appearance on the stand. Uh, because I, I realized then that our cause was lost. The minute I saw his attitude, I said, we're dead. I, as a matter of fact, Doris Sherry was sitting alongside of me in the audience and I said, we're dead. And, uh, and that's exactly the way I felt about it. 
Um, but it took a long time for me to put everything together. Uh, but I had put it together long before I went to prison. However, I knew that if I suddenly recanted and uh, said, uh, I want to purge myself or I'm not with them any longer in spirit or in, in principle or in anything else, people would have said he's afraid of going to jail. And he's doing it simply because he's a coward and, and, and doesn't want to go to jail. So I knew I had to go to jail, at least show them that wasn't what was motivating me, and, which I did. Ay, ay, ay. He turned. He turned on us, folks. Oh, there's, you know, there's another person that I would love to mention that's I think should be included in the Hollywood 10 and isn't mentioned with the Hollywood 10. His name was Bartley Crum, and he defended the 10. Uh, at the at the at the committee, he was their defense lawyer, and people disliked him so much, especially the FBI and the CIA, that they tapped his phone. Oh, jeez! They incur- they made sure that like he couldn't keep clients for his own private law practice, and Mr. Crum eventually took his own life in 1959. Now, what is the aftermath of these 10 men saying we're not going to answer questions? Well, on November 24th, uh, Congress voted to cite the uncooperative witnesses holding them in contempt of court, 346 to 17. Wow. A couple of days later, on November 26, 1947, uh, the president of the Motion Picture Association of America said that 50 of the field's top executives met for two days. They decided to drop all 10 men from their payrolls to hire no known commies in the future and and refuse to rehire any of the blacklisted men, quote, until he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declared under oath He's not a communist. This was known as the Waldorf statement. What's interesting is, is that uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Floyd Odlum, and he owned a bunch of uh, RKO, the studio, and he was so frustrated and disgusted by what was happening, he quit RKO, and it turned over to Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes, he fired most of the employees. He shut the studio down for six months to investigate the still remaining employees to see if they were commies. And when he got back, when like the six months was over, he decided, you know what? I'm going to settle this huge antitrust lawsuit that the studios were having with the government. And that was the first big break in the collapse of the studio system. When he said, hey, we're going to settle, that's when the studio system started to fall away. Oh, cool. And of course... At this time, other groups wanted to throw their support behind the studios. So in 1949, the American Legion came up with their own list of 128 people, including playwright Lillian Hellman, who did not work for a long time after that. All the gossip columnists threw out names on radio and newspapers. So all of a sudden, all these people were being called communists without any sort of proof. And I think probably the best example of this is maybe Lucio Ball. If you just saw being the Ricardos on Amazon, that's really what it's dealing with when Walter Winchell said that Lucio Ball was actually a member of the Communist Party. Uh, and that could have ruined her career. Uh, a group called American Business Consultants, they said they were former FBI agents, but have no access or no affiliation with the FBI anymore. They were just concerned citizens. Well, somehow they had a lot of access to FBI files, and they published their list of 151 people. Oh, my God. They thought were commies in their newsletter, Counterattack. That was their newsletter. (laughs) And in a book called Red Channels, The Report of Communist Influence in Television and Radio. This is 1950. They listed 151 people, and I'm going to read some of them for you. Uh, the Adlers, Luther, Stella Adler, Leonard Bernstein, A. Burroughs, Lee J. Cobb, Aaron Copeland, Howard De Silva, Jose Farrar, John Garfield, Will Gear, Jack Guilford, Ruth Gordon, Uta Hagen, Yip, Somewhere Over the Rainbow Harburg, Judy Holliday, Lena Horne, Langston Hughes, Burl Ives, 
Gypsy Rose Lee, Ella Logan, Burgess Meredith, Arthur Miller, Zero Mostel, Dorothy Parker, Edward G. Robinson, Pete Seeger, Artie Shaw, Howard K. Smith, Orson Welles, Jeez. and on and on and on. I love that they were, I love that they, this too, whatever they were. 151. Should we take one off? I feel like that's a... No! We need a show we put the work in! No, we gotta include everybody. It's unfair. Yeah. Come on. Come on. We gotta put Zero Mostel in there. Come on. All right, all right. Uh, so now what we're looking at is now HUAC 2. The sequel. The sequel. Uh, the first person to lose a job because her name appeared in the book was an actress named Jean Muir. Um, she was on a television show, and General Foods was the sponsor of the show, and they said they would not sponsor it. And the network received 20 to 30 calls saying, get her off the air. She's a dirty commie. Wow. And so Jean Muir was the first to lose. Now, in 1951, the Democrats are now in control of the House, and what do they do? They launch a second investigation. So both parties are to blame for this one. But this time, they're going to throw some more names on the list. Oh. That includes Eddie Albert, Richard Attenborough, Harry Belafonte, Barbara Bel Geddes, Charlie Chaplin, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, Dolores Del Rio, Lee Grant, Kim Hunter, Norman Lo- Lloyd, and like I said before, via insinuation, Miss Lucille Ball. Sounds like you're telling me who, who's going to be on like the Variety Hour. The House on American Committee Variety Hour with <laughs> Lucille Ball. <laughs> yep, Harburg. Oh, that actually would be. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's actually a fun show. The person I was affected by the most, not affected by the most, but uh, someone whose testimony stuck with me a little bit, was an actor by the name of Larry Parks, and he said to the committee, "Don't present me with the choice of either being in contempt of this committee and going to jail, or forcing me to really crawl through the mud to be an informer. For what purpose?" I don't think it's a choice at all. I don't think this is really sportsmanlike. I don't think this is American. I don't think this is American justice. However, he did testify, and he was still blacklisted. Of course. And one of the things that was so interesting was he mentioned, he did not say he was a communist. He didn't say anything about him, but he mentioned Lionel Stander again. Remember Lionel Stander from before? Um, Just the name. They just mentioned the name. And because of them mentioning the name in the committee, Lionel Stander stopped working. Jesus. Um, And when he was called in front of the committee, this this is what he said. Quote, I know of a group of fanatics who are desperately trying to undermine the Constitution of the United States by depriving artists and others of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without due process of law. I can tell names and cite instances, and I am one of the first victims of it. This is a group of ex-fascists and America firsters and anti-Semites, people who hate everybody, including Negroes, minority groups, and most likely themselves. These people are engaged in a conspiracy out Outside all the legal processes to undermine the very fundamental American concepts upon which our entire system of democracy exists. Mr. Standard did not work, needless to say, for quite some time after that. You know what stuck out to me right there? America firsters. Oh, yeah. You know what Trump's thing is? America first. America first. Like that's bit like his people are saying like, well, you know, even if Trump's not there, we can continue the America first camp. So it's just, I don't know. It's There's so many things that are still relevant today. I think as soon as you have an enemy, you just have to say, well, they're anti-American. And automatically, I mean, these studio bosses did not want unions. That's the bottom line. They didn't want their unions. They They felt that they were not needed. They weren't necessary. And so they decided, oh, this is what will... This is this this is a perfect in for us. Now the second committee, people being called in front of it, they had a new tactic. The first group said we're not answering based on our First Amendment right to freedom of speech. This group is going to have a new tactic, and that's the Fifth Amendment. 
Mm. No self-incrimination, which is fine. Although, once again, being a communist is not illegal, but in Hollywood, apparently it is. And so then what we what starts to emerge out of, out of this, it's what's known as the uh, blacklist versus the gray list. Um, the blacklist is those who have been like the people that we just talked about, the Hollywood 10. The gray list are people who like by insinuation can, you know, uh, they might be a communist. And a great example of that is Orson Bean, the actor Orson Bean. He was on the gray list. Orson Bean recalled that he had briefly been placed on the blacklist after dating a member of the party. And if you know Orson Bean, he's probably, well, knew Orson Bean, he was probably one of the most Republican conservative people ever, ever. But because he dated a communist, Suddenly, he was now on this list. Uh, people like Elmer Bernstein, the composer, also were put were put on that list. But there were some friendly people to the committee, and that were people like Elliot Kazan and Bud Schulberg. Elliot Kazan directed on the waterfront. Um, he he did uh, a streetcar named Desire. He was this brilliant film director. And if you remember, in the nineties, I think the Academy Awards gave him an honorary life, an, an honorary Oscar. And if you remember, some people stood, some people did not. Because they were like, you name names, which is exactly wow. what he did. And he made with Bud Schulberg on the waterfront as a way of explaining to the people like, hey, this is why we name names. So if you watch the movie on the waterfront, you'll realize that the people that are naming names are the heroes. And that's what he was trying to get across to everybody. <laughs> um, lives were destroyed because of this. Once again, there's no proof because it went from well, we have Dalton Trumbo's com- communist card to well, I saw him at a meeting and she said that, you know, now there's no proof, but careers are being destroyed because of that. Um, UPA and Tempo, which were animation studios, UPA was purged of most of its staff. Tempo finally collapsed. There was a screenwriter named Richard Collins. He named names his wife did not. Um, He divorced her, took the kid, and she died of alcoholism. Oh, my God. In 1952, the Screenwriters Guild, which had been founded two decades before th- by three future members of the Hollywood 10, they authorized movie studios to, quote, omit from the screen the names of any individuals who had failed to clear themselves before Congress. Wow. One of the best examples of this is uh, the movie Moulin Rouge from the 50s, which starred Jose Ferrer. Um even though Jose Ferrer had appeared in front of the committee and had been cleared, the American Legion said, we still think he's a commie. And they protested the movie and they were like, and the studio was like, Jose, do something. So he wrote to the American Legions and said, I am not a communist and I will even join the legions to help you fight communism. In 1954, screenwriter Louis Pollock, a man without any known political views or associations, suddenly had his career yanked out from under him because the American Legion confused him with Louis Pollock, a California clothier oh my God. who had refused to cooperate with HUAC. So oh now this is one of a mistaken identity. Eventually, this needs to rebuild itself. Eventually, people need to realize how crazy this was. And the first person to really break out of it was Jules Dassin, who was a director. He directed a film called Rafifi in 1956. It received a lot of critical plays. It played in New York for about 20 weeks. So that movie and him, uh, which was done by an independent production company, sort of allowed this people to go, like you said, the world's not going to collapse if these people are allowed to write movies and stuff. John Henry Falk was a, uh, a morning show host. Um, and a group called aware said he was a commie. He lost his job. He sued aware in, and he won the case in 1962 in 1958 on television. There was a television version of the musical wonderful town, which was based on the writings of Ruth McKenney and then written uh, for the, the musical theater stage by a guy named Edward Chodorov. Um, they were both blacklisted. They were allowed to have their names on the credits. Okay. 
1959, Betty Hutton was a very famous actress. She got her own television show, and she demanded that blacklisted music director Jerry Fielding was on her show. So slowly, it but it, t- it took people like Betty Hutton, it took people like Otto Preminger, it took people like Kirk Douglas to sort of get all of their names out into uh, the, the general public. Maltz, if you remember Mr. Maltz, and the other members of the Hollywood 10 attempted again in 1960 to fight the blacklist, and this time they filed an antitrust suit claiming the studios had conspired illicitly in restraint of trade by enforcing the unofficial blacklist through mutual pressure not to employ the affected creative personnel. And uh, they were able to, to get some money out of that. Nowadays, there's or and it actually got done, I think, in the in the early nineties or so. Now it seems that just about every single person who had been who had, had their names removed from a film or a television show now is allowed you will now see their names in the credits. So if you watch Roman Holiday, if you watch Exodus, you'll see all these people's names up. However, there there are still I'm sure movies uh, that are out there that were written and directed by people that are receiving credit for it that never had anything to do with it, while all of these people who have been blacklisted are not able to do so. Um, so that's the story of the Hollywood 10 and Jeez. the Hollywood blacklist. The committee eventually faded away in the mid-1950s because um, Joseph McCarthy, which is a whole other topic yeah. of discussion, just sort of blew it up. And the, maybe from the guy, have you no decency, sir, yelling at Joseph McCarthy, all of that just made this whole thing go away, but there are still people that are dealing with the ramifications of the blacklist. Now, in the 21st century, is there still a blacklist? Ay, ay, ay. We'll talk about it when we get back. This was a thing, this was a thing, and, and now, this is a sketch. William Morris Agency, William Morris speaking. Bill, it's me, Tom. Look, I know things are tough right now, but I just want to see if you heard anything back from Washington yet. Look, Bill, you're a damn good actor no matter what Washington says or does to you. Ah, stop the runaround, Bill. I'm a man. Tell me. Straight to my face or over the phone. Real honest. Real square. Good old-fashioned American truth, Bill. The committee said they would not subpoena you. Damn it, Bill. But I thought you said they would. Tom, they looked into your record. You're the least political person in Hollywood. No one can find your name on any voting record except for the one where you voted for Lancashire to be renamed Zazu Pitt's Way. Damn it, Bill. I need my name back out there. What do I do? You had your chance, damn it, Tom. This country gave you ample chances to go to a meeting or buy a book or maybe make a donation and look like you wanted to be a commie. But no, you stayed home. You played with your jacks and your balls. Bill. No one remembers me. The blacklist will get my name back out there again. Imagine seeing my name next to people like Dalton Trumbo. Wow. What an actor. Did you see the one where he was the flying elephant? That was Dumbo, Tom. Tom, I can't get you on the blacklist. I tried. I even told them you had sex with a risky gal, and they knew. They knew I was lying, Tom. They know you only have sex with American women who have given up on their own lives. Fine, Bill. I get it. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I thought this was a good country. A country that would throw your name on a list with no evidence just to get a little press. Now look at us, Bill. Look at us. Things like evidence and witnesses and truth. What happened to Hollywood, Bill? What happened to America, Bill? I don't know, Tom. Well, I should go now, Bill. I'm doing my civic duty and harassing anyone I thought was against us during World War II. Well, bye-bye, Bill. Bye-bye, Tom. Damn this witch hunt. Ooh, speaking of witches. 
Betty, get my wife on the phone. <laughs> She's a yappa. Thank you. This was a sketch. So, Mr. Hebel, do you think that today, th- is there still a blacklist? We know that there's not one in the government. There's no committees anymore investigating whether or not people are loyal Americans. But is there a, are, are there blacklists today? Well, I mean, like a list of people who can't work. I mean, yeah. with, I, with the Me Too movement, I feel like, although, I mean, yeah. I mean, would that be would, would that be on the same vein? In the same vein, I mean, like I feel like there's a lot of people that can will never work again in, in Hollywood because of have uh, of, of being involved in the Me Too movement. Yeah, I think the only difference is is like in cases like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, they committed crimes. Well, yeah, okay, you know, sure. You know, I think yeah. But is there a world in which people are not allowed to work because of their thoughts, their philosophies? Mm. If you're, I guess, like if you're anti-gay, like vocally anti-gay, or you know, vocally racist or racist things, you know what I mean. That's that's not necessarily a crime. Correct. So I feel like yes, maybe maybe that you know. But I no, I I agree with you. I think now we have become the House on American Activities Committee, the general public, Twitter, and I yeah, and I was going to say I think our courtroom is social media. Yeah, which is you know you can. Look at somebody like Kathy Griffin, who didn't do anything illegal. You could look at somebody like Roseanne Barr, who didn't do anything illegal. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- what they did was, you know, reprehensible. Somebody like Dave Chappelle, what he, his comments are reprehensible. But does that mean that they're automatically canceled? Which is what happened to these people. All these people lost work because of a specific thought and idea, which is now what we're dealing with. Which is now people can lose their jobs. They can't. I mean, think of all the people that don't have careers anymore because their thoughts or their political ideas doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that the uh, Congress has returned the power back to the people. Good <laughs> to make that decision. Thank you, Congress. Thank you, Congress. Nancy Pelosi. Thanks, Nancy. So that's the story, though, of the Hollywood Ten. Um, all of these gentlemen to hear what they went through, and then when you when you talk to people who were around at that time, it was absolutely frightening. It feels like it's a monster movie. I'll, I remember this very clearly. I interviewed uh, years ago Arthur Miller's sister, and her name was Joan Copeland. She Miller. Had, uh, her name was Joan Miller. Oh, actually, no, maybe it was Joan Miller back then. Maybe that's anyway. I interviewed her, and and the story was she was in she was very old at the time, and I felt like she had had dementia or something. But she her stories were rambling, and when we were wrapping up the interview, she said, "Oh, it's like the time I was blacklisted," and we were like, "What?" And this woman became so clear and so cogent and so alert all of a sudden. And she said, "Yeah, she goes, it was the 1950s. She goes, I had a pretty big television career in New York." And I went in for an audition for something really big and it went well. And I was leaving the room and I was at the elevator and an executive ran down the hallway and said, I'm so sorry. Are you related to Arthur Miller, the playwright? And she said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, thank you very much. And she said, I didn't work again for 10, 15 years on television because it was guilt by association. association. And of course, I think probably the best work from all this period is Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which if you've never read The Crucible, it's about the Salem witch trials in which people can make accusations without any sort of evidence. And Arthur Miller wrote that as his, not homage to, but an allegory about what was going on in contemporary time and with the House on American Activities Committee. So when you read The Crucible, that's what this is about, which is the idea that suddenly in this country, you can throw evidence, you can just say this person did this, this person did that without any sort of evidence. And 
what they're doing is not illegal. Being a witch wasn't illegal, and being a communist wasn't illegal. Who do you think was supposed to be Tituba? Probably, uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Maybe Nixon. <laughs> Maybe Nixon. The girls were dancing in the woods. I saw Goody Proctor. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I don't know. That's actually a great question. I don't know. Let's ask Mr. Arthur Miller. But my feeling is, is that I think we are now entering a phase where we have become, like I said, we are now the congressmen. We are the ones who say philosophy wise, politically, we don't like what you're doing and therefore we're not going to give you an opportunity to do so. And it's a free country. It's a, it's a free country. Um, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, but to, to silence people because they have political beliefs that don't align with ours, not not healthy, not helpful, because we, we've now turned into this committee. Mm-hmm. Both sides. Preach. Both sides. I'm not saying one side over the other. I'm saying both sides have, have done this. Um, and that's the story of the Hollywood 10 and the blacklist. Ooh. Now, do you want to play a game? Oh, do I have to name anyone's names in it? Yeah, so, Ray, I'm just curious, like, have you ever been to a communist meeting? This committee oh, is no. not the right play. This is I'm the just wrong asking a question, to, Ray. This is not what democracy was founded I'm just on. A... The foundation of this country was built on. Let me ask you again. Do you have a two of clubs? Go fish. <laughs> this was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a This Was a Quiz with Mark Schroeder. Mark, did you know anything about The Blacklist? Did you name anyone? Yeah, I've been writing scripts for years and I've never landed on The Blacklist. It was just, <laughs> I, my projects aren't good. Oh, the, uh, the other, yeah, oh, yeah, I was yeah, yeah, confused yeah, yeah, when you started yeah, presenting yeah. too. Oh, I'll I was be like, honest why do people want you. to be on that? Yeah. Okay, no, no, I know now. I know now. But it, uh, I knew it as the Red Scare. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, but there's many more things that are a bit scarier and red that exist. Today we're going to learn a little bit more yeah. about some other red things that are far scarier in a little game called Red and Scary. <laughs> Rob, Ray, you're going to compete against each other? Separate mm. rounds? See which one can get the most it's right? Ray. I'm going to read a clue about a person, a place, or a thing that's both red and scary. You guys got to guess correctly that's to a earn noun. a point. Let's talk about nouns. <laughs> At the end of these timed rounds, the person with the most points wins. The loser spends a decade in the gulag. <laughs> Well, with goulash. With goulash. That's actually lovely. <laughs> uh, who went first last time? Who goes first this time? I I, no, you go first. Okay, I'll go first. All right, Raymond, here you go. Count Chocula's serial cohorts include Booberry and this character. Mmm, uh, mummy, mummy something. Incorrect. Frankenberry. Frankenberry, goddammit. Comedian Kathy Griffin received critical and commercial backlash when she posted a video of herself holding a mask styled to look like the severed bloody head of U.S. President Donald Trump. In what year? Uh, 2017? Yes. This redhead played a character who was frighteningly obsessed with Vince Vaughn in 2005's Wedding Crashers. Isla Fisher. Correct. I love Fisher, too. (laughs) Santa Claus, a common cause of mall trauma for young children, derives his name from roots in this language. Uh, Nordic. Dutch. Dutch. This Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies character is a large hairy red monster wearing giant tennis shoes. Uh, 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 man thing. (laughs) That's Gossamer. 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 
In the Fifty Shades of Grey series, the room where moody billionaire Christian Grey indulges his darkest sexual appetites is called this. The Red Room? The Red Room of Pain. Okay. I think you need the pain part. Yeah. I don't know if I can give you that one. You need the Red Room of Pain. And to think that those, I mean, now I understand why those books were so popular. <laughs> I mean, people just want to get hurt. The Red Sun of Krypton destroyed the planet, but not before baby Superman was blasted to Earth by his father Jor-El and his mother named this. Jor-M. Lara. Her name is just Lara. I know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, okay. Uh, those are two of seven. Uh, red and scary. They're scary. These questions are scary. These are hard. I'm telling you, they're not. Yeah. Get ready, Rob. Strap in. This visual literary character is the mascot for the Scholastic Corporation. Uh, uh, Pippi Longstocking. That's Clifford the Big Red Dog. Mm. I was going to say Richard Scary. This half-demon was summoned to Earth as a baby by Nazi occultists. Rosemary's baby. That is Hellboy. Mm. This Dark Lord of the Sith has his head and face covered in red tattoos. Hold on for one second. I know this one. Are you passing a note, sir? No. Um, Raymond, are you passing a note? He's right. He's right there. Ray is uh, spinning. He's it, right there next to his in his chair. What is he? He's, he's a red what? Blast he's, a, he's a Sith. He's a Sith Lord. And he's red. He's a, has a, he has red tattoos. He's a Zab. He's from the Zabrak species, and he was raised by the Night Sisters, and that's and that's the tribal tattoos. Ray doesn't know his name. He just knows these other facts about. Him. He's got a double-headed lightsaber, huh? Dual-ended lightsaber? Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. That is correct. Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, Raymond, who might that be? Darth Maul. That is Darth uh, Maul, Ralph. Darth Maul. Oh, he's right there, too. He just happens and to be doubled up. And then he's also on the bookshelf He's all there. around you. I you like should have just Maul. looked around. Darth Maul's a good character. Buddy? I do not know anything about Darth Maul. I do know about the Oaks Maul. <laughs> <laughs> is this the same thing? Yeah. It's similar. Are there Sparrows? <laughs> Dream stalker Freddy Krueger wears a striped sweater of these two colors. Red and black. Red and green. Green and green. What? Yep. Yeah. No. Yes, I kid you not. Go to sleep and you'll see tonight. <laughs> oh. This is the common name for the antennae small red insects that can bite you. Red ants? Fire ants? Fire ants. Fire ants is, is, I mean, it's tight here. I don't know if I should give you. What do you think over there, Ray? Should I give him that one? Yeah. He loves you. Somebody over there likes you. This comic played anger in 2015's, in the animated 2015 Disney Pixar film Inside Out. Um... Louis C.K. Louis Black. Ah, Louis Black is correct. Good. He is Sonic the Hedgehog's former rival and best friend. Oh, the fox, right? Is the fox? I mean, I don't know if he's a fox, but... I don't know. There's Knuckles. Knuckles. Yes! Yeah, he is an echidna. Echidna? He's not a fox. He's an animal called an echidna. But that, you got three. I believe Ray got two. Okay, thanks, And he Ray. gave you the point that was the go-ahead point, which was nice of you. Well, you said something. What was the one about the red ins insects with the fire ant? Fire red ant. ant fire do ant. You know, kind of interchangeable. Do you know what the Pink Panther said when he stepped on one of those? Mm -mm. Dead ant. 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 For more great jokes, go to uh, Instagram at This Was a Thing Pod, or go to our website www.thiswasathingpodcast. Nope, this was oh a thing. Oh my god. This was a thing.com. There's no podcast. There was a thing.com. Uh, and if you really like what we're doing and you want to get me some memory lessons, go on and <laughs> donate to patreon.com. $5. That's the old Lucy level and above a month. And you get content every other week that the general public is not allowed to listen to, observe, absorb. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, let's keep ourselves off the blacklist. I was going to say, I, can I just, I want you to just look at this pamphlet. Oh, no. I'm having a meeting at my house with some interesting ideas. <laughs> with some interesting ideas.
Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 